Today, we're here to talk to Dr. Daniel Allen, and I'm thrilled to have him on the show because he studied and practices the original form of osteopathy and cranial osteopathy medicine. It's changed so much over the years, so much that the original practice is almost lost. So it's really important to me to get this recorded and documented on what the original practice involves and how it's different from today's practices. Dr. Allen has been involved in the clinical practice of osteopathic medicine for 22 years. Born in a rural family in Western New York State, his early years were a mixture of basic skills from baling hay and tractor driving to playing the piano and community theater performance. Finding his way to osteopathic medical school in Kansas City in 1986, he expected to become a general country physician, and he focused on his interest of the traditional osteopathic philosophies of knowing the patient down to the bone with developing his hands-on skills. Now, in the summer of 1987, Dr. Allen took his first week-long cranial osteopathy course and experienced the inherent fluid breathing life mechanism for the first time. So we'll be learning more about what that means exactly. I'm very curious myself. And from that point on, his life was altered. He knew he could not go back to just following the hard science model that human life was simply a complex system of chemical reactions. So I'm thrilled to welcome Dr. Allen to the show. Hi, Dr. Allen. Yes, hi, good morning, thank you. <laughs> it's nice to have power back, huh? Yes, that's very refreshing. <laughs> yeah, we're in Northern California and we've had a lot of power outage days, but honestly, I, it was, I think it was a good exercise for everybody to sort of go back to <laughs> living a little more primal and, and not being so dependent on all the comforts that we have day to day. Yep, that's true. I enjoyed not having the background buzz of, of electricity everywhere. Yes, it was, yes. Uh, it was more fun to do my hands-on work, but it was a little cold. That was the problem. <laughs> well, so you kept your practice going then. I did, yeah. We just put people under blankets and uh, got, got through a couple, a couple days. Good, good. I'm glad to hear that. So before we get started, where, where was it in New York that you grew up? Because I actually went to um, school in upstate New York in, in Ithaca. Oh, Ithaca, yeah. We, yeah, it's about three hours from us. We're west of there. And the town is called Gowanda, G-O-W-A-N-D-A. Okay. Yeah. Well, tell us a little about your story. Now, you know, we, I know... We already talked about how you went to the osteopathic medical school and you were planning to just become a general physician. Um, yes. Tell us a little bit about that and how that led then to what you actually do now. Well, I didn't really know much about medicine. The only, the only doctoring I'd ever seen was the general doctor that we'd go to. I broke my leg when I was six and he was... Uh, very handy to go visit and uh, went out to his garage, cut some boards. I could hear the table saw rev up and he came back in his office and brought the boards in and made a splint for us. And we took the 40 minute <laughs> drive to the hospital and then he met us there. So it was kind of a full service thing. He was also the doctor that birthed me. 
And of course, I, I didn't have any big, big, uh, uh, big injuries or illnesses. So I'd only go see him when we had the colds or something like that. And that's the only kind of doctoring I knew. And uh, I liked going to his office because he had uh, glass cases filled with all sorts of instruments and sharp tools and things that I thought were fascinating. So um, I headed off uh, when I finally decided to try medicine uh, with the idea of being a country general physician, delivering babies and doing simple surgeries and helping people. Uh, and that was the direction I headed. And uh, osteopathy was a good fit for me. It was a, the hands-on part I really thought was valuable. And, uh, you know, coming, growing up post, uh, post the 60s revolution and getting back to nature all just made sense to me. So Excellent. that was my path. And then you um, were continuing down that path until you took this cranial osteopathy course. Yeah, you know, uh, it was hard to get information. We didn't have the internet in, in those days, mid-80s. And uh, uh, not all of the manipulation instructors were, were that supportive of cranial work. But uh, as a student interested in all sorts of things of that nature, I went to weekend workshops and went to national conventions and was able to travel to these things and was exposed to a little more than just my school curriculum. And that led to interest in what is this weird craniosacral work and, you know, who they think that the bones of the skull move and how could that possibly be? I was a, had a bachelor's in biology. I'd studied life all through school and science and nobody ever mentioned that. They they still teach in the MD school still teach that the skull is fused and that doesn't move. And uh, that's just not, the, it's just not true. And, I see. And so I, I was interested to see what this course was about and it really did just, just blow my awareness. I remember being very angry for many months. Well, how could this be? And I thought I had a science based good education and why didn't anybody tell us about this aspect of life? And it's, it's not just limited to the cranial head or the bones. It's a movement of the whole life field, the whole, the whole biosystem of the planet. So is that what you mean by inherent fluid breathing? Yes. In the word of inherent motion, that causes a lot of problems for the scientists. Um, and the description of craniosacral work uses the word inherent motion of the, of the central nervous system. Well, the scientists say, well, what makes the motion? How is that possible? There's no muscles inside the central nervous system. Uh, and it's not just fluid motion, and it's not just breathing motion, and it's not just heart uh, circulatory motion. It's inherent. It's the, the cells themselves expand and contract in a living cellular respiration. And uh, oh. it, it seems to be uh, related more to the life field movement, expansion, contraction of the, the spark of life. And that is scary for scientists. I see. So that's how you can say that the bones are actually moving because um, it's actually the cells of the bones well, that are doing this yes, extracting. There, there is that, but the truth of the physiology of the skull bones is that they have true joints between them. The sutures 
have a synovial fluid in the articulations of the bones. And if you look closely at each suture, it describes a motion. It has bevels on one side, bevels on the other, pivot points. And you look at one bone and you see how is that possible? But if you look at the whole skull as a unit, you see how the, uh, the bones, uh, the sutures of the bones, the joints of the bones describe a motion. For example, the temporal bone where it meets the parietal bone has a sliding nature, and the temporal bone where it meets into the sphenoid bone has a pivoting nature. Temporal bone where it meets into the occipital has a what they call a jack lift. It has a, a, a jugular uh, process that actually lifts up and it's all described in a axis of motion that is consistent all through the skull. So uh, it's not that the bones are fused, it's that they, uh, they have subtle motion, and, but it is physiological joint motion. Hmm. So if you can actually see this motion, or could you see it under a microscope, or is, is it more that you're feeling it? Well, um, they have done studies to prove that it's moved. Uh, they used monkey studies some years ago uh, using the skull of living monkeys and lasers to document motion. Uh, but it, it's, you know, scientists are funny. If their brain says that it doesn't move, it doesn't matter what they see. They still believe it doesn't move. Hmm. And, so that's uh, why you don't learn this in biology classes and... Well, yeah. I mean, I, I run into uh, uh, patients who've seen doctors in Stanford, Stanford neurologists, and they say, oh, that's bunk. Their skulls are fused and that's it. But they, they haven't looked at the pictures of physiology of micrographs of seeing the synovial joints there. So uh, it's a funny world. We, ha we have a funny world. Fact is only part of the equation. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> I agree. So then you, you, dis you discovered this in that perennial osteopathy class and realized that um, there's a lot more to this than, than you had studied originally. Yes. And yeah, so then did you start your practice out there in New York or where did you start? Well, uh, my pathway was through Kansas City for four years and then a hospital-based internship uh, through the University of Buffalo back in Buffalo, New York. Oh, uh, I my, lived there as well. <laughs> uh -huh. My personal life, we had, uh, I was married in medical school and we just had a new baby as I graduated and it felt like uh, maybe we'd get some family support by going back to Buffalo. So we, we did that. And then uh, from there, I, I decided to do my focused training, my residency in hands-on osteopathy, mm -hmm. which took me back to Missouri to the first school of osteopathy. They seem to have the best program in that, in that uh, area of study. So I went back to Kirksville, Missouri, and that gave me an awful lot of good experiences, both with my hands. I got to study with uh, obstetricians that were active in treating newborns and moms, and that was a real interest of mine and I because it was a, <clears throat> a regional hospital but but in the country I was able to moonlight in the ER and became an ER physician there as a resident and uh, actually did some full-time ER work after I was done so uh, I had a well-rounded experience there I got to scrub in on some surgeries I got to help with the sports medicine club and and all sorts of good experiences there. Now was this 
this a traditional clinic or was this a specifically an osteopathy clinic? Well, uh, modern, <laughs> modern, modern American osteopathy is full blown MD style medicine. I mean, it was yeah. a full teaching hospital. We had residents in obstetrics, in surgery, in internal medicine, in general practice. So the hospital was a full teaching hospital out in the country, and uh, the ER saw about uh, 12,000 visits a year. So that's a moderate to small ER, but it was busy, and that kept the hospital going. And it was a regional medical center. So I don't know what the miles radius was, but probably 100 mile radius at least. There wasn't anything else around. I think um, St. Louis was was more than that. So. But they were open to you practicing this hands-on work. Well, yeah, we, uh, mm -hmm. we were required to bring that to the hospital as the residents in manipulation. We, we rotated through the hospital system, just like the medical students rotate through the hospital system. And so as residents, we would bring hands-on concepts to the internal medicine department, to the hospitalized patients. There's a whole series of training and how do you treat a hospitalized patient that is weakened or debilitated you can't just put them on a table and and yank them around so there's ways to treat them from, from just holding the feet or just slipping your hand under the rib cage and helping them breathe better after surgery or stimulating the nervous system so that their bowel and yeah, getting a body to come back into life function after it's been anesthetized is quite an art, just that aspect of itself. So there was that, there's the obstetrics where we could do hands-on work uh, to help the newborns breathe better or nurse better or get a better nursing situation. Oh, I don't know. Those are the big things that I focused on. Nice. Now, now that's, you don't see that in every hospital across the U.S. Well, correct? you don't. It's unfortunate that we still haven't understood that human beings are living things and they should be treated as living things, not as pieces and parts. But we're still a couple decades away, I think. So is this, this clinic, this hospital in Kirksville, are they still doing this combined sort of practice? Oh, yes. Uh-huh. There's a, another, some of the hospitals, you remember back in the, I don't know, pre-80s, uh, there was a segregation between hospitals. There were osteopathic hospitals and MD hospitals, and the MDs were quite prejudiced against the early osteopaths as a whole. I mean, you could write a volume and get a PhD on the history of osteopathy, I suppose. <laughs> Nobody really has, but uh, uh, overcoming prejudice, uh, providing uh, patients with care, providing benefit, uh, that's what kept the osteopathic profession alive. It actually worked. And, uh, and they, even today, uh, you'll hear people say that the osteopathic surgeons uh, are are better with their hands. They are better with uh, taking care of human beings. So something rubs off in the within the training that is kind of non-specific, but but uh, experiential. Nice. Now, would you say today um, people could go study what you studied, or has it changed that much that to become a DO you you're doing more traditional? medical work and studies? Well, uh, I have watched the system uh, as uh, in my in my beginning practice years, that would have been 1990 and through that whole decade, 
we watched the, uh, the insurance companies start to take over medicine, start to dictate what had to be done, start to tell the doctors what to do, start to dictate uh, doctors' uh, payments based on diagnostic codes and moved, moved medicine away from patient care and into managed care, into managed manipulation of, uh, of the data. Mm. The, the modern industrial system of medicine is a data management, statistically based system, and it's moved so far away from natural health care that I really don't participate in it very much. Um, yes. So as the modern, I have friends and I've helped uh, students make their decisions for what kind of profession they want to go into. And I just talked to one this morning who's studying in San Francisco at the school there. And uh, he's still ex excited. And what I find is that the modern students that have a lot of exposure to things, a lot of modern students have had exposure to natural medicine or uh, homeopathy or yoga practices, healthcare practices, some type of nutritional practice. And those, those students that have had those experiences can bring those interests with them into the medical training and they can carve their way into uh, getting a lot of good hands-on experiences and taking extra courses in craniosacral work or that kind of thing and developing a natural approach to healing. It's, it is possible. Yeah, it's lovely to see our youth today and how much more exposed they are and yeah. interested in those topics like yoga, like nutrition, right. healthy eating, clean eating, yeah, yep. it's beautiful. I uh, didn't know really much about any of that <laughs> when I was right. in my 20s. Well, how, how could we? We were bombarded with the material world and with commercialism, and I call it the Pringles and Pepsi <laughs> culture. <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> yeah, so there is hope. There is hope, but... Um, so if somebody wanted to study what you do, that um, they were lucky enough to come across you or one of the others in the country, yes, um, what would you what would you suggest to them? Well, uh, there are options to do what I do without going through a full um, science uh, MD style medical training. Uh, the Canadian osteopaths are separate from the medical uh, profession in that they don't uh, they don't do the hospital medicine. They don't do a lot of the prescription drug medicine. They do mostly the hands-on medicine, and that's true for European osteopaths as well. It's just the American osteopaths that have really been engulfed in the modern medical system. So, um, if a student wasn't that interested in going through the medical indoctrination, they could go to osteopathy from a different direction. Um, there's also uh, some hands-on people now that just do hands-on and they don't do the medical training in different systems. Uh, uh, you know, physical therapy, those are people that just use their hands and help people. Mm -hmm. And so there's different pathways. I actually like to have the what they call the full spectrum training, I even though I don't do hospital work anymore or I don't manage a lot of quote medical diseases, um, I think the background experience that I've had and uh, culminates into who I am today is very useful. Um, it's easier to make clearer decisions. It's easier to 
kind of rule out uh, unknowns. And I think it's easier to, um, if a patient's really in trouble and isn't going to be benefited by just hands-on work because they have a serious problem, I think I'm able to say, you know, this doesn't feel right. I think you really need to go get a heart study or a bowel study or something like that. So I think that's useful if you're taking care of a human being. I think you probably should have those those training experiences. Nice, nice. So Europe as well, then they're still doing this more of this hands-on medicine and you can study it there too? Oh, yes, uh-huh. And uh, there's a, uh, the osteopathic profession has been expanding uh, really quickly the last 10 or 15 years. There's many more schools in the U.S. than there were when I graduated. There's over 30 now, maybe 38. I think there were 18 when I graduated. So in 30 years, it's, it's expanded. And that was part of the political uh, changes in medicine and part of... Uh, modern educational systems uh, trying to fill needs in places uh, in the United States that were kind of short of physicians. Uh, modern American doctoring training kind of emphasizes specialties, um, doctor specialties, and the specialists then uh, need to be in cities and urban areas where there's a bigger population so they can do their specialty on enough people to fill a practice. And there hasn't been a lot of teaching in the general practice in, in rural medicine. And so the osteopathic profession has said, we teach rural, we teach general practice. We teach a good, well-rounded uh, thinking physician. So uh, why don't you help us get a medical school in, say, Tennessee or Oregon or Washington or someplace where there, there isn't a, a, a lot of doctors? And so that's what's happened. And uh, I the osteopaths have expanded their, their profession. But uh, the reality of it is the modern insurance-based medicine has kind of taken over control. And, and uh, just because students are osteopaths, they don't necessarily have to have a natural approach to medicine. Uh, and they don't have to have really good hands. And they don't have to be able to feel anything. Just because they're an osteopath, they can also be a uh, renal transplant surgeon and not do any manipulation. So it's really up to the individual to carve out the niche that you want to. to Plus be. it takes time. I know just from being a patient of yours, it's, it's not a quick in and out visit. You, it takes time yeah. to do the hands-on work. And so well, yes. maybe in the traditional insurance-based world, they can't earn enough when they spend an hour, an hour, an hour yes. and a half. On well, a that's, that's the burden. That's what they see. It's hard to shift realities. You know, if you, you get in that system, that was your training. You did a residency in family practice and you learn to see people in 10 minutes and move through problems and problem solve very quickly. And that's your lifestyle. And that's what you do. Then it's hard to say, Oh, well, I'm going to now see my patients for an hour each. And, uh, and everything's going to be fine. Well, it's not. It's a whole different lifestyle. But mm -hmm. that's what that's what changed my career. I, uh, I I started to do some advanced study in what's called biodynamic cranial work and uh, a whole system of even more listening to the fluids of the body, even more listening to the quality of of the movement, not just the movement itself as a baseline, but as the quality of the movement of the movement and the quality of the breathing and the quality of even the 
the field of the nervous system. And, and uh, those qualities, you do have to take time and slow down. And so that, that kept me in a, in a different kind of practice and why I don't work so well in the medical industry that demands, demands a production. Yes. Let's talk a little bit about cranial work because that is a lot more popular and known now. And yes. a lot of massage therapists do that. But I know you've said before it's a little bit different. Talk to us about how that's evolved also. Yeah. Well, the craniosacral, uh, like I said, uh, as a terminology, as a field of study, was developed by a Dr. Sutherland who uh, was actually exposed to uh, Dr. Still, who was the first osteopathic physician. And uh, in his practice in the early 1920s, he started to have questions about, well, why was the skull shaped the way it was shaped? And why did it look that way? And like I said, he studied uh, and his wife helped him do experiments on themselves and on their friends and, and then eventually on patients to see if he could actually help people by just holding the head or influencing the movement of the craniosacral system. And he described a system and five components of movement in the body. And that became a, a study. And through the years, he then decided to teach. And they would have, uh, actually in the early days, uh, post-World War II, uh, they would have to kind of meet secretly because the main profession thought it was bunk, thought that they were just goofy. And so they'd go to national conventions and, and meet in hotel rooms and not make a big deal about it. But the people who were interested were very dedicated. Mm. And uh, uh, some of the stories talk about doctors traveling by train across the country to go to a meeting, say, in Chicago. And then they'd be there for two weeks and then uh, take a train back because they had to study anatomy and, and uh, technology of their hands. Uh, and it took time. And so you think about a, a, a practicing physician taking two weeks out of their practice to go and study. That just tells you the level of dedication that they felt and the importance they thought that they were, they were learning and providing. So that was the inside story. And then, like I said before, Dr. John uh, uh, Upledger was a uh, practicing osteopath in, in Michigan. And he was a resident there, family practice. And he had some experiences with a neurosurgical team and he was able to actually feel the motion under his retractors as he held the retractors for some neurosurgery of the spinal cord and the surgeon was hollering at him hold those retractors still and he'd say i am holding them still it's moving <laughs> and the surgeon would say you're stupid you're there's no motion there <laughs> so there was a conflict but his personal experience was very dramatic and he he was a good osteopath. He had good hands. He could feel. He, he knew when something was tugging on his hands and when they weren't. So that gave him a lot of power in his understanding to go out and try to teach. And he tried to teach the physicians. But like we said, it takes time to feel. It takes time to relax your own nervous system and are able to feel these subtle motions. And so the physicians weren't that interested. They're like, well, why would I want to do that? I can just give them a pill or I can just, you know, send them to the physical therapist. And John Upledger was very discouraged. And he then started finding, he started teaching nurses. He found that nurses had the patience and the skills to feel. And that kind of 
brought him out of the medical profession. And then shortly after that, started teaching massage therapists and other types of body workers who had uh, some kind of a license to touch people. And so then that became the craniosacral movement and uh, became a worldwide teaching organization. He and his son developed this million dollar program over the course of many years. And it's still the institution, the Upledger Institute, still going on today. Dr. Upledger has died a few years ago, but the institution continues. And so craniosacral is now out and it's then become a commodity. It's taken out of the osteopathic philosophy and given to the public. And so once that happens, it, all sorts of things happen. So yes, we have people taking a weekend course and then saying they're doing cranial work. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I don't believe they have a background of anatomy and physiology, human interaction um, that is really necessary to provide effective and safe craniosacral care, but that's what's happened. So you do have to be careful who you let squish your head. So even though the movement is so subtle and it feels like you're hardly doing anything when I'm laying on your table, you're saying it, it could even, if, if it's not done correctly, it could be detrimental? Oh yes, yeah, it, that happens quite often. And, and uh, the other problem is it may not be very effective. And so then we have a portion of the population who have said, oh, I tried cranial work, this lady gave it to me or this fella, and it didn't do anything. In fact, it made me have a headache. So it's all, <laughs> it's all crap and I'm not going back. And so that's kind of a detriment to, to the movement of the work. Um, so but, I guess to help people, our listeners of what, what to look for, because this, you know, this is broadcasted all across the U S I know I in our town, I know who to look for, but, uh, um, for others, our listeners, what would you recommend they look for as far as training of a right. practitioner? Well, I mean, you can get very specific and ask your practitioner, what, what is your experience? How did you become a craniosacral worker, you know, and if they say, well, I've taken a weekend course and I, I've been doing it for six months, maybe that's not the best person. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, uh, there are good non-physician people that do body work that are very, very good. I've known several. Mm -hmm. Some people just have a natural, you know, I, I helped to train a nurse midwife and uh, she was exceptional. She would she just took to the work. She had a feel for, for living systems and her hands just were, were a gift to her. And she was able to use them and treat newborns. And I have no, no qualms about her doing any of that work. And, uh, you know, there's other people that I've met along the way that have been very dedicated to study and, and uh, taking a lot of classes and working their way into knowing how to have respect for the life force. Um, but there are things you get into uh, when you start unhooking patterns in a living human being that may be more than you bargained for. It's not just, oh, your temporal bone is stuck and I'm going to release it by putting my finger in your mouth and pushing over here. Uh, you know, you may be unhooking some emotional entrapment that maybe came from something that happened to him years ago that you're not, you're not ready for. You're not able to hold space in a solid way and safe way. So then you're just messing messing people up so mm. you know as far as what to look for you have to talk to your your people and you have to learn to listen to your heart to say is this person trustworthy do i feel safer with them or do i have to protect myself when i go visit them your body will tell you and uh, 
Yes, that that brings up an interesting topic all in itself of, of emotional, you know, emotions being stuck in the body somewhere and yeah. causing symptoms, causing physical problems. Um, I uh, have a little story about that myself. I used to be severely, severely allergic to cats. I would get oh. blisters on my eyes and oh. asthma. I'd have to use my inhaler and oh. and I had a treatment um homeopathy based that now i can be around cats and i have no problem at all and it just went away from one day to the next but part of that treatment i also was guided by my practitioner to look at the source of my cat allergies because i wasn't born with it yes and it happened in high school kind of around the same time my mother developed her cat allergies and there were things going on there that were pretty big and major in my life and yes. traumatic. And yes. when I discovered that, I think that was part of also the the, tr- the treatment, getting past these allergies was sort of looking at the source and what was going on, you know, in particular with my parents at the time, because my mother also <laughs> had these allergies develop. And yeah. so that's where the emotions can really have a huge impact. They have a huge impact. And I, I love homeopathy for that reason. And it, and when stories like that come along that, oh, I've totally changed my physiology based on these vibrational seeds and vibrational pearls and components. And you're like, well, maybe we don't really understand the physiological basis of life. You know, <laughs> that's what <laughs> exactly. I love about it. And it's so true. Uh, you know, I'm working now more in the vibrational world using tuning forks and vibrational bowls and singing bowls and finding that uh, to use those devices along with my hands-on uh, palpating the tissues response has been very gratifying and very exciting. And uh, yeah, Lovely. homeopathy is just a refined vibrational tool in the higher frequencies. And Yes, and acupuncture as well, right? Acupuncture, pressure, and acupuncture. All of it, shifting the vibrational hole. And uh, boy, you start getting into that world, and now pretty soon you're talking about well, maybe it's an ancestral vibration, even even deeper than uh, than uh, childhood. Childhood deeper Mm -hmm. than DNA, deeper deeper than our chromosomes. It's a it's a vibrational field that's transmitted through the lineage of life. So, holy man, now you're into all sorts of big problems and don't even jump over into the spiritual realm. Now you're really I love it. I love it. That's what is so fascinating to me is just looking at all those angles and talking to people that have had successes when doing that and to practitioners who who work with that. Yeah. And there's very exciting. All sorts of stories of the mind, changing the mind, it changes the physiology, changing the mind changes the body. So, boy, we're, we're so far away from really understanding the vibrational energies of all of that. Do you feel like it's moving more in that direction? Do you feel like, you know, our, our kids, grandkids are going to be in a completely different world in that regard in, in medicine? Well, I, and- I think so. I think it has to evolve. Uh, you know, first, we're going to have to go through this awful period of denial, you know, the denial that uh, vibrational electricity does not affect our bodies. And then eventually we'll figure out that, oh, maybe cell phone by your head is not the best way to, to treat a brain. And 5G. And 5G <laughs> and all of that uh, hyper surveillance oh, I have yes. to go through. But uh, 
I don't know. Uh, the one of the favorite scenes that I always remember is from a Star Trek episode where uh, one of the the workers falls off of a uh, falls about thirty feet and has his head and and the doctor runs over to him and the uh, says I guess they were somehow back in time they were in a time trip and they were back into modern American times and and in our in our time and the doctors were there saying oh we have to drill a hole in his head and let the blood pressure out before his brain is hurting and the modern <laughs> Star Trek doctor just puts his scanner over him and says my god that's barbaric we don't have to do that sort of thing and he just goes you know and the vibrational healing tool fixes it right there with him <laughs> so, wow and somebody had to come up with that right line. sure yeah so i don't think they were pulling it completely out of the dark no, no who knows how all who that knows? <laughs> i expect that to be a very real real event when we start to understand electromagnetic fields and how that relates to the life field and and uh, I'm working with some of those tools myself. We have a new device called the Amp Coil that is a frequency generator and helps to affect physiology that way. So very new yes. and exciting stuff. I know about the Amp Coil and I would love to get you back on another episode just to oh, talk yeah. about that specifically. Well, maybe better wait a few months. I still need more experience, but okay. I'm very excited by it for sure. Uh, I love to hear that. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Allen. And are you, um, is there anything else you wanted to add before we wrap up? We are getting close to yeah. time here. No, I, you know, my personal path has been up and down like everybody's life, but uh, I'm very happy that I was able to develop my skills in this way. And I've been, I've been working hands-on people now since 1990. And uh, since 1993, it's been my full-time daily job and uh, given well over 10,000 treatments at this point. And just a few months ago, I started to feel like, ah, maybe I really can have consistency in my experiences here. So, you know, it takes well, a while. But, it uh, does. It does. I'm into the second half of my career for sure. And uh, feeling like, well, okay, all those experiences, I was talking to somebody about all the things that I'd done in my life. And they're like, really, you did all those things? Yeah, I did some of this and some of that, raced motorcycles, had horses, drew up on the farm, was in theater in college and this and that. So all sorts of different things have led to who I am today. And I think I'm able to bring that to my patients. So very good. Lovely. And I'm I'm very blessed to have you in my town yeah, so that good. I get to <laughs> experience you. It's been a treat, of course, every time I come. And uh, speaking of sound healings, there's one tonight in town. It, it, oh. You don't happen to be going, are, are you? <laughs> I don't know about it. Which one is it? I don't know the details either, but I'll, I'll definitely let you know. Oh, I have a friend so that told me about it. Yeah, I like those. We, we've actually done some ourselves. I have a partner and we play bowls and all sorts of things. And we've done a few shows ourselves. So yes, moving that forward as well. Well, how do we hear about your, your sound healings? Oh, do you golly. have a mailing list or anything? Well, I do have I do have a mailing list. I mostly use Facebook. I have a Facebook page that I've been uh, working with. Oh, some. okay. Uh, I'm 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 need to look for that because I have never yeah. seen that. Yeah. And just to end for our listeners, um, is there any kind of resource online for people to find hands-on, you know, doctors of osteopathy? Yeah, there's different there's different resources depending on what you're looking for. Um, 
There is, uh, if you're looking for uh, a basic uh, osteopathic manipulation, more of the physical realm, there's the American Academy of Osteopathy, um, the AAO, American Academy of Osteopathy. Then if you're looking for craniosacral specifically, there's the Cranial Academy, and that's the Cranial Academy, and uh, they have a listing of physicians. And then uh, uh, my uh, what I consider the highest level of osteopathic hands-on care is the biodynamics, and that is listed under our teacher's name, which is James Jealous, jamesjealous.com, and there's a physician directory in that website. Excellent. Excellent. So thank you, Dr. Allen. Thank you to all of our listeners that have come today. And if you didn't get to write all those resources down, just visit simplylivingwellness.com and it'll be all documented there under the podcast menu. Very good. Well, have a beautiful day and maybe I'll see you at the sound healing. Yes. Do let me know. Thank you so much. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.